I, I think this is the biggest thing. When you see something that's not right, you know, if you feel at least that you can, speak up. Welcome to the Beyond the Waves podcast. I'm your host, Julia Taranzak, and my twin brother Michael has Down syndrome and is my inspiration behind everything that I do. My mission is to share the lessons I've learned in unconditional love through growing up with Michael, to provide a means of healing while empowering you to achieve what makes your heart sing, all while revealing the beauty behind each individual who has Down syndrome. Welcome back to the Beyond the Waves podcast. Thank you so much for being here and welcome to our new season where we dive into the intersection between racism and disability, which is something that I find to be incredibly important, especially after all the Black Lives Matter protests that happened in 2020. I think it's really important to consider how racism and how disability intersects with one another. And I've chosen some incredible guest speakers to come on to the show who can share a little bit more about their perspective between those two. Today, I am so excited to bring in Calvin Harris. He's an incredible entrepreneur, and I'm so happy to have him on our show today. Calvin Harris is a native of Atlanta, Georgia, and a graduate of Savannah State University, a historically black university. While in Savannah, he also served in the United States Coast Guard, working in recruiting and often with underprivileged youth. Calvin is currently the founder and managing director of Revely Trading Company, a direct trade coffee company focusing on empowering small farmers through business. Before becoming a founder, Calvin traveled extensively worldwide, visiting over 50 countries on six continents seeing the injustices around the world, and wanting to help led him to earn his MBA from Holt International Business School in London and a Master of Finance from Holt, Boston. Additionally, Calvin has studied at Harvard University's Extension School and is currently pursuing his doctorate in international business at the International School of Management in Paris, France. Welcome, Calvin Harris, to the Beyond the Waves podcast. Calvin, thank you so much for joining us today. It is such an honor and such a pleasure to have you on our show. And going through, you said that you worked with underprivileged youth while you were in the Coast Guard. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience and how it shaped who you are today? Sure. Well, thank you for having me, Julie. I greatly appreciate it. And um, so, yeah, so I enlisted in the Coast Guard back in 2012 and um one of the, I mean, I had many different jobs. One of them was, was I worked in recruiting. And in recruiting, you know, we spent a lot of time going to high schools and talking to um, a lot of kids or high school students, rather, about, you know, what are they going to do in the future? What are their um, ambitions and goals? And I guess one thing that I definitely learned um, that I didn't really see coming when I went to these high schools was how, like, real underprivileged children, um, how bad it really was. Uh, to put it in perspective, I had no idea before this job how many kids were actually homeless, right? Like, they were in school. I mean, 
just absolutely homeless. Like their parents um, were either drug addicted or in prison and they would tell me these stories, but yet they still had all of these, you know, these dreams and, and they looked up to someone who was, you know, I was a low man on the totem pole in the military, right? Like really not um, that high ranking or anything, but they looked up to me so much and just looked, you know, for advice. And it's, I don't know how to explain it. It just kind of started to, to, open my eyes to just how bad um, a lot of these underprivileged youth had and how few opportunities they had. That's a really powerful thing to experience. Yeah, so um, it definitely affected me going forward because it. I think that was the beginning of me really wanting to do more, right? This was the beginning of me volunteering a lot, spending a lot of time um, in some of these schools because this was a volunteer job. So, I mean, while obviously I was, I shouldn't say maybe not volunteer job, meaning I volunteered for it as an assignment in the Coast Guard. So yeah, I just spent a lot more time just going back and, and just trying to like impart what little wisdom I had at 22, I don't remember how old I was, um, years old with them. And yeah, this is kind of what I believe started to lead me down the path of, you know, really wanting to help people and make, you know, make changes in the world. Of course. And I mean, for a high schooler, I feel like they'll look up to any adult. Right. And even when they were in their 20s, even from 22 onwards, there's so many people who still say they're still learning how to figure things out. Exactly. You know. That they were able to have someone like you to still look up to because you're still in that space where they can still look up to someone else as well. Right. Yes, most definitely. Exactly. You also told me that you spent a really extensive amount of time traveling. Can you share more about your experience and where you visited and what came out of that? Sure. So um, I guess I should start off by saying that, you know, one of, I told you before, one of my favorite countries in the world is Poland, um, which, you know, I know that your family's from Poland. But yeah, I spent um, about a year, uh, I took a year off between, so I medically retired from the Coast Guard, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do next. Um, so I just took off, spent an entire year traveling around the world, uh, left the United States, went through Europe, North Africa, Eastern Europe, um, jumped over to Asia, hit China, went, you know, all down through Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, so on and so forth. Eventually ended up in South America. Also did Australia, New Zealand, you know, and you know, I learned the amount of lessons I learned on that uh, around the world trip were just immense because it was the first time I had really seen abject poverty. You know, you, you see it on TV and you see how people live uh, in these ways, but it's completely different than, you know, walking through the streets in, in some place in Vietnam or Cambodia and actually spending your time, you know, talking what little bit you can with, obviously I don't speak Vietnamese or Cambodian, but you, you still, you know, communicate and you meet these people and you see these children and it's just, it's just, um, it's very touching. It's very, I don't even know, it's, it's hard to explain, right? It's like, you very just important. be yeah, that exactly. It's very humbling. You really learn that, like the struggles that some of these people go through. I mean, just for clean drinking water, you know, things that we take for granted. But one thing that I also will, will say that is I saw a lot of relation between the, you know, the underprivileged children that I had worked with and like the children in, in places like Vietnam. I mean, I, I really wonder sometimes, is it worse to be, uh, you know, poor in a rich country or poor in a poor country? Because when you're poor in Cambodia, everybody's poor. So they all work together to try and help each other survive versus here in the United States. Um, you know, a lot of times you're just kind of on your own. Yeah, definitely. 
And through your travels, it sounds like that kind of inspired you to create what you have now. And you've been created an incredible coffee company that supports farmers worldwide. Can you share a little bit more about your impact and what started that whole process? Sure. Um, so, well, first, thank you. Um, so Ravelry Trading Company has been, um, been an amazing experience. We spent about a year um, planning before we actually launched, which wasn't that long ago, just a few months ago. And um, yeah, so essentially, one of the things that I learned when I was traveling was, or one of the things I should say I saw when I was traveling was, you know, how is it that some of these countries produce, you know, all of these, you know, things like coffee, I mean, they, they grow, you know, whatever agricultural products they manufacture in, in some parts of Asia. And it's like, how is it that, you know, they're basically the, the lifeline of, of the United States and other countries around the world, but yet they are so poor, you know, what, what institutions have created this? And so, so essentially, you know, this is, you know, Revely's entire uh, mission is kind of to disrupt the, the day-to-day, kind of how things have been going for the last, I don't know, forever, right? How, how trade has been done for all of these years. And because, you know, trade, when you look at it, you know, going way back, the reason that, that coffee is, the reason that farmers are so poor today in places like Colombia, where I met a farmer who told me that he had worked all day from sunup to sundown and didn't even have enough money to buy himself dinner, let alone the rest of his family, is because of these ridiculous uh, supply chains that we have where you have a farmer who then sells the coffee to a co-op and the co-op then puts it all together and then sells it to a wholesaler who then imports it to the United States and then sells it to a distributor who then sells it to, you know, roasters who then roast it and give it to the grocery store and the grocery store sells it to you. And I mean, you have to think everyone along the chain is taking a, a bit of that money. So Revely is basically aiming at that whole supply chain. And what we are doing is we're just saying, why do we need all of these steps when we can just go straight from the farm to you. So, you know, we just go in and we, we find these farmers that are willing to work with us. And that's pretty much all of them uh, <laughs> so far, because it's, it's almost for them, you know, sometimes they're, they're a little bit skeptical, like, you know, this guy just wants to come in and, and do this, but why, what's in it for him? You know, why does he want to come in and, and buy our coffee and then help us, you know, obviously we are a for-profit company, but we're a social enterprise. So, I mean, we, there is money to be made, but I just don't feel like we have to be greedy to make it. Exactly. And I mean, it's so interesting hearing your story. You were at the Coast Guard first, you're traveling. Did you ever think you were going to be the founder of a direct trade coffee company? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> this was, I mean, you know, actually just a couple of years ago, just, I just started drinking coffee like two years ago. I mean, no way. Yeah. Before that, I never drank coffee, just didn't do it. I was in the military. I was like the only person that I served with that did not drink coffee. And so for me to go from, you know, uh, a heavy coffee culture in the military and being the only person in my unit who never drank coffee to the founder of a coffee company is just, Kind of like, I would have never believed, believed that if you had told me two, three years ago, that's where I would end up. Um, so ironic. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's so funny. I love that you shared that. Did you, how do you think being a person of color has impacted your journey to creating Reveille? Um, 
geez, I mean, it's, I think it's so, so impactful um, in just every single way. It's kind of hard to even, you know, think about it because, I mean, it, it really goes down to like the root of who I am, first of all. But I mean, I guess if, you know, that could be a whole nother, that could be a whole podcast series probably. But, the you know, on the surface level, how has been a, being a person of color uh, impacted? I, I think it's made some things um, a little bit easier, but some things are much harder. Uh, I think as a person of color and, you know, I worked extremely hard through my undergraduate before I joined the Coast Guard to just to be there. I dropped out of college in my first year after my first semester because I couldn't afford it. I moved back uh, to Atlanta and I worked, you know, 70, 80, 90 hours a week to be able to pay back the university the money that I owed them so that I could go back. And, you know, when I was starting Reveille, people were telling me like, oh, you, you, there's no way you can possibly do all of these things. You know, I was like, I'm going to travel to these countries. I'm going to do meet these farmers. I'm going to import their coffee. I'm going to market it, do the social. I'm going to do all. And then people were just like, you, you can't do that. And I was, remember thinking to myself that if I could work 80, 90 hours a week in a, in a Domino's, like, you know, doing oh, everything. Fucking, for, I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. You know, you're answering the phones, you're cutting the pizzas, you're making the pizzas, you're ordering the food, you're, you're sometimes delivering the pizzas, and I can do all this for someone else. Why can't I do all of this for my own company? So I think, you know, for people of color, a lot of times, you know, we're used to kind of just being beaten down. So, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of terrible to say that, but it's true. So when we go to start our own companies, you know, I think we have to look at it like, we could do it for someone else. How come we can't do it for ourselves? Exactly. And it sounds like you had so much discipline, especially when you left college and you're working 80, 90 hour weeks. Did you continue that same discipline when you started your own? Yeah, um, most definitely. So I still wake up. I mean, it's easier, I guess, because you don't, I have things to do, right? So at 730 in the morning, I have to get up. I can't just decide that I'm, oh, I'm going to do what I want to do. No, because I've got emails and I've got coffee roasting that has to be done. I've got people that depend on me, right? Exactly. I've got coffee farmers that literally their lives depend on, on Reveille because we're holding, <clears throat> excuse me, we're holding their coffee here in the United States. If that coffee doesn't sell, then they don't eat. So mm -hmm. it's, you know, so the discipline is kind of easy when, when you have, I mean, people think it's just coffee, but you know, it's people's livelihood. Oh my gosh, totally. You're doing an incredible job just supporting so many people around the world. And what are some things that make your company really unique? So um, I would first start with, um, you know, we're a service disabled veteran owned black business, which is like a mouthful to say. Um, <laughs> we're, we're members of 1% for the planet. So we're also um, very environmentally conscious. And also on top of that, it's just our model. Our model is just disruptive. It's different. We, we are direct from farm to, to you. And, um, you know, that alone, I think it, it makes us very unique in the coffee space because if you ask most, uh, most people who work in coffee where their coffee actually came from, they couldn't tell, pick up the phone and, and call a farmer in Honduras and, <laughs> you know, and, and introduce you to them. So, you know, I think that's, what makes it so interesting. And it's also what makes me uh, absolutely love it because I, I do talk to these farmers almost on a daily basis and give them updates and reports and let them know how their coffee is selling and what the next moves are for them. So 
yeah, I think that's what kind of makes us unique as a company. That's amazing. What sort of impact have you had on the small farmers and what have you, what have you seen so far? Yeah, what a great question. So um, I feel like the best way to put that would be like a quick story. Uh, there's a farmer that we work with. Uh, his name is Abel and he's in Honduras and his family has, he's a third generation coffee farmer. And his family has been growing coffee since uh, the ni- early 1940s. And they've been exporting and selling this coffee and, you know, from 1940s all the way till now. And I met Abel through a friend of mine who um, I studied with and they're, <clears throat> they're very good friends. So there was kind of a, a level of trust uh, from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And basically Abel told me what his goal was is that, Right now, he or before this, he used to export his coffee to other companies in the United States who then took it out of the package that he sent it in, put it in their own package and said, hey, look at our great coffee. And, you know, (laughs) we can't talk about the names of some of these companies, right? But they're selling coffee all over the United States and they're making lots and lots of money doing it. And so when Abel brought this to me, he was like, it's just kind of terrible because we get this low price for our coffee. They just put it in a new package and sell it as theirs. And I'm like, yeah, that, that is messed up. So now we import Bloom's Coffee, which is their coffee company. And now they're beginning to, to grow here in the U.S. And, you know, the goal is to, to get them some market share. So that way, over time, there's no more of them having to sell it to some other company. And then they make all of the money. Now Abel is able to, um, Abel is able to, <laughs> right, but is, uh, is, you know, he's able to basically begin growing his own company here in the U.S. without ever having to step foot in the U.S., which allows for him to reinvest. And by the way, like his coffee is just absolutely amazing. Like they've spent so much time and money like cultivating and, and making their coffee what it is today. It's probably my favorite coffee that we sell. <laughs> it's amazing just to see that they're finally getting the credit they deserve, right? They're working so hard and now you're giving them the opportunity to just get all that back instead of just giving it all away. Exactly. And I'll have to send you some of uh, some Bloom's coffee, actually. Oh, I'm so <laughs> excited. I can't wait to try some. And to pivot a little bit, I saw you got your MBA in London and a Master of Finance in Boston. How did you juggle those two together? Yeah, so um, basically I would go to class in the morning in Boston. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do them at the exact same time. So I was fortunate enough to do my MBA in, um, in London, and then my university offered me a full ride to go to Boston afterwards um, and do my Master of Finance. So, you know, my plan was to finish my MBA and immediately launch Reveille, but then I was like, how do you turn down free education? I can't. So I went to Boston <laughs> and did my Master of Finance to follow. Wow, that's so impressive. And I believe, are you still studying right now? I am. So I'm currently working on my uh, PhD. I'm doing my doctorate in international business um, at the International School of Management in Paris. Obviously, I'm not in Paris right now because of, uh, you know, current pandemic situation. But hopefully after the pandemic, I'll be able to, you know, continue going back and forth. That's amazing. How are you juggling that while you're still running a business? So that's uh, another interesting question. So where the, the cool thing about my, uh, my PhD is uh, my area of research interest is entrepreneurship and specifically minority entrepreneurship. So 
that's kind of what my dissertation, I hope, you know, once we go through the approval process, it's you know, a long process, but will be in something related to, um, you know, minority entrepreneurship. So everything that I do for Reveille, I actually document and I'm writing and, and putting it together. And that's what I actually use for most of my research papers and most of everything that I do is actually just based on Reveille and what we're doing and the, the hurdles and the challenges that we face um, as a black owned business in, in the United States. So it, it kind of just goes hand in hand. And it's great because it, you get feedback from professors uh, about some of your handling of, you know, whatever situation it could be. They give you ideas as well as, you know, you're able to actually document the, the journey so well because, you know, you got time, dates, uh, events, emails, like everything. So, yeah, that's kind of how we, we balance like, it. You're the living example already. <laughs> I don't know about that, but we're working on it. That's amazing. And to kind of conclude, I want to pivot, especially because we're doing a Black Lives Matter series. I can't thank you enough for participating in this. And especially one thing that we're exploring is really that intersection between racism and disability. And mm -hmm. I think it's so important for our listeners to understand and hear stories of others just to kind of get a better understanding of what's going on. Because someone like myself, I'll be honest with you, I never grew up with that many people of color. I grew up in the whitest city you could have ever seen in San Diego. <laughs> and when I started hearing so many stories this year, it started really opening my eyes and realizing there's more that needs to be shared. And one thing I wanted to ask you is there's been a lot of things that have happened this past year. Obviously COVID has been the biggest one of them, but there's been a lot also in terms of Black Lives Matter. And I was wondering, can you share a little bit more about how you've been impacted by that this year? Sure. So um, we launched in March and when every, I mean, it was kind of, you know, like you prepare, you prepare, you prepare, you prepare. And then it's, you know, kind of almost like a percentage of just being ready to seize the opportunity, right? Revely's had a, a tremendous amount of growth this year, having just launched in March, if you had told me in March that here in November, we would be doing the revenues that we are, I would have not believed you. I, I just would have been like, that's not possible. So Black Lives Matter and everything that's been going on around it has really propelled us to be able to, um, to grow at a, you know, at a very, very quick pace. And so it, it's definitely had a huge impact because now all of a sudden, people are coming in and, and actually, I mean, I get emails every day of people that are like, I'm actively seeking out a black owned, black owned companies to do business with. And a lot of them come from California. So we really appreciate you, California. You know? <laughs> yeah. So much of our business goes to California. It's, it's incredible. So um, it, it's definitely has a large impact on what we do as well as it also uh, interesting thing about uh, everything that's been going on is we as black owned businesses have kind of had to band together to make things happen. And it's just really amazing to see that I can pick up the phone and call the owners of other black business, even black owned coffee companies. And we collaborate and we, and we work together. And if we can solve each other's problems, we do it. And it's not a competitive, like, you know, you're the enemy. It's like, no, you're, you're an ally We're we're, we're in this together. So yeah. I want to see you succeed. There's enough room for the both of us. There's no reason for us to act like that. So, you know, there's actually a group chat that of like all of the, 
uh, most of the black owned coffee companies, we all are getting to know each other, but there's only like a handful of us. So it's not that hard. Right. Yeah. It sounds like you've, is this, this past year, have you just created this empowering community? Um, I would say over the last couple of months, really, uh, that it's just all kind of come together. It's normally just one person who will reach out and, um, say something and then we'll meet and then it was actually some I forget the name of the company now she's from Canada but she reached out to me um and she's the one who told me about like this group chat and that I should be in it and that people had already talked about us and I'm you know so it was interesting and I was like yeah sure of course we want to be a part of it so it's it's just great I love that thank you for sharing about that and to pivot a little bit do you have any examples of where you've experienced racism growing up or through starting your business and how did those experiences affect you? Yeah, um, they're actually, I mean, the most recent one I can give you uh, was not even that long ago. This would have been, um, geez, last year. And uh, yeah, 2019. So the most recent example I have would be, well, actually I actually have more recent than this, but the biggest one was when I was actually trying to buy my car, right? I was, and I was in New York. I had just come back from Shanghai and I landed in in New York. I needed a car like pretty quick because I didn't have one and I had just moved back to the States. So I went to the Jeep dealer because I knew I wanted a Jeep Wrangler and I went there and they started just like interrogating me. Like, you know, when's the last time you had have you ever had a new car before and i was like oh yeah you know i I used to have a bmw and they they were like well what year was it and i was like telling them they were like so you you bought it new and i was like yeah and they were like was it in your name or was it in someone else's name and i'm like you know what kind of questions are these and then eventually they just decided that they didn't believe that i i don't know what they thought but they were just like we'll call you now what kind of car dealership have you ever been to where they don't chase you down out the door trying to sell you a car, you know, instead they're like, yeah, we'll call you. And then they just never do. And this wasn't just like an isolated incident. Right. So then I went to some other dealerships in uh, Boston, outside of Boston area, same kind of attitude, didn't offer me a seat, didn't offer me anything to the point of where I had to call a dealership in Atlanta and talk to them on the phone and tell them, told them the whole story of what happened. And they were, and I told them, you know, if you guys give me a good deal, I'll hop on a plane tonight and I'll be in Atlanta tomorrow morning to pick it up. And they just shot me a great offer. I, and I, that's exactly what I did. I hopped on a plane. I flew to Atlanta. I bought the car and drove it all the way back to New York. And it's just like, the, but I remember I was so angry at the time because I was like, you know, I have other things that I need to be doing. I was trying to prepare for Reveille. You know, I was trying to finish my master's degree. And instead I'm on a plane flying to Atlanta after flying all the way across the world because these people will not, you know, sell me a vehicle. And, you know, and I mean, these types of things go on. I mean, that's, you know, and then we can go into like financing problems that Reveille has had. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I don't want to go too, too far here, but, you know, uh, just a quick note, you know, recently we had, a, we were very fortunate to get a pretty big uh, contract and you know with a multi-billion dollar company and a purchase order but in order to fulfill this contract we had to come up with you know twenty thirty thousand dollars in order to be able to just fulfill it so generally with that you take a purchase order from a a big reputable company and you you go to a bank and you say hey you know i've got this purchase order they're going to pay me in 30 days i just need to fund it 
um, so that way I can continue my operations because I have to pay my suppliers. But I could not find a bank in the world that would finance it. They would take the meeting when I would email them. But then when I actually went to the bank, it was like, no, basically. And it was just incredible to me. Like, either they didn't believe me. I don't know what their thoughts were. So it's like, these types of problems for Black-owned businesses are, are really, really hard because I had to personally finance that. And, you know, this is how you can almost become a victim of your own success because the more of these that happen, you know, now we're, as a company, we're in a position where we have other large uh, companies coming to us, right? And they want to they buy lots and lots of coffee, but they want to pay on these 60 and 90 day orders, but we can't find banks that are willing to finance these. And, you know, you would think a large multi-billion dollar company, they know they're going to pay. There's no question of whether or not we're going to get paid. They're not small companies. But, you know, it really puts us in a situation where we could easily bankrupt our own company by just taking on too much. So we have to be careful at this point. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of a long-winded answer to um, problems that people of color, I feel like, uh, especially in the business sector face, it's just, you know, almost like credibility. Like they just don't believe us. I, I just, I can't even, I have no words. Like that is so shocking to me. Just hear what you're sharing. Have you been able to find a solution to that? Or are you still kind of on your own in a sense right now? So we are completely bootstrapped, um, you know, which just means that we have financed, I have financed everything. Um, we haven't done any financing or raised any finance at all to this point. And um, yeah, so the solution to that is just basically we just keep powering ahead and we take it day by day um, and try not to bite off more than we can chew. So um, it's really hard though, because right now in today's climate, we have big box retailers who are like, hey, you know, we wanna put more black owned businesses on our shelves. Can we do business with you? And you know, how do you, you don't wanna turn down, you know, uh, some of these large companies, but at the same time, you have to be like, you know, if they put in an order for, you know, $200,000 worth of coffee or $300,000 worth of coffee, I have to finance that for 60 or 90 days until I get paid. So, you know, we're working, trying to find a solution, but to be honest, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, if not impossible. Exactly. I mean, I hope something, I mean, something needs to change, especially when there's so many movements going on right now. And there's a lot of you know, a lot of black businesses, it's like you're saying, you're all kind of almost, I don't want to say banding together, but you're all empowering one another. Right. It can't stay like that forever. Right. I mean, it's a, I hate to say it like this, but it's the truth. It's an institution, right? That we're trying to. So even though we have a lot of these big companies, you know, that are doing great things to try and help, you know, black owned business by putting us on their shelves. And it's unfortunate because then we have another institution, which is the banking system. And we know that, you know, black owned businesses are, are severely underbanked. And so we have this other problem over here. So, you know, they can't fix that problem because they're not banks, you know, so we have to find banks that are willing to, to lend. And, it, you know, it's just, it's just like a mess basically. Yeah. It's, I think a lot of people have kind of understood this year that it is, it's ridiculously institutionalized. Yep. And it's such a deep rooted issue. And there's just, there's so much we have to do, but we got a lot of work to continue doing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's not a moment. I think I 
something I remember this year is that it's not a moment, it's a movement. We're going to keep pushing forward. Exactly. <laughs> Why, I mean, what are some things that you want listeners to know, especially those who want to be allies? What are some things that we can do? So um, I would say, you know, when you see something that's, um, I, I think this is the biggest thing. When you see something that's not right, you know, if you feel at least that you can speak up, you know, say something um, at the very least, if somebody makes an off color joke, you know, at the very least don't laugh, right? You know, just make it so that, because the problem that I see in a lot of these situations, I just wonder, you know, does, was everyone in the car dealership a racist? Probably not, right? Probably not. However, it's the rest of the people, there had to have been other people in those dealerships that realized and saw what they were doing. And could they have at least said something, you know, to make that one person who, who was doing this um, feel uncomfortable enough to at least even think to themselves, like, this could become a problem. Like, if I make, the, you know, I made a joke, I said, whatever, this could be a problem. Let me, maybe I shouldn't do this. And I think this is where, because if we have enough allies in the community, right, then people will, they won't know who, right now it's easy because they say, oh, I, you know, if there's nobody black in the room, then I can say whatever I want to say. And, but if you, we have enough allies, then you don't know who, who is, you know, going to turn you in and who's not basically. Yeah, where you that problem up come and, from. You got to speak up and keep that accountability in there. Exactly. Definitely. I thank you for sharing that. And lastly, from your experience, what piece of advice do you have for our listeners? No matter what it can be, whatever you've learned, what do you have to share for us? Um, haters gonna hate. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I am, but I'm not, right? Like, I, I, there were so many naysayers, um, so many um, in the beginning. And I'm not gonna say, throw anyone under the bus. However, when you have something, when you have an idea, there's going to always be so many, there's going to be many people, sometimes almost everyone who is just going to be against it or tell you these hundred thousand reasons why it would never work. You know, I'm not saying you should always listen, right? You should listen to what people have to say and you should always consider it, you know, and, and take that into, into account when you're making your business plan or you're doing whatever you're doing. However, don't let them, bring your idea down. Don't let people, everyone around you sit there and tell you that it's not going to work. And then you just say, oh, you know what? So many people say it said it's not going to work. It's probably not going to work. Even if those people are extremely educated and intelligent and you respect them, you know, doesn't mean they know everything. So yeah, I would just say, just, you know, pursue those dreams and keep going. Sounds like you did a lot of believing in yourself. It sounds like a lot of trust, a lot of believing in yourself and putting on the blinders when you need to put them on. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, I think we have to also remember, I mean, Julia, we met um, really early on in the Revely journey. And I feel like you were one of the people who were definitely behind, uh, behind us and like pushing us ahead. And, you know, I really appreciate that. And I, and I thank you because I mean, if correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe our first interaction was before black lives matter even started. I mean, it was, it was in the, I mean, I was still living in Boston. It was in the very, very early days of Reveille. And yeah, you were, you were definitely a, a positive voice. So I really appreciate that. Thank you, Calvin. Thank you so much for your kind words. I am so excited to be a part of your journey and I can't thank you enough for coming on to our show. 
how can we support you? What can our listeners do to support Reveille? What can we do? Where can we find you guys? Give us the lowdown. <laughs> so, um, you know, obviously you can find us on Instagram at instagram.com slash Reveille.io. Um, our website is Reveille.io as well. Uh, but yeah, but also just, you know, uh, try and reach out and support all, you know, minority owned, disabled owned. I mean, there's so many different businesses. And, you know, even though we just voted in this last election, I always say that, you know, we vote every day with our money, right? We vote every day with the decisions that we make. So, you know, seek out the businesses that align with your, um, with your values. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on, Calvin. I can't wait to catch up again and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Julia. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please let me know. You can find me on Instagram at Beyond the Waves blog. And if you know someone who may benefit from today's episode, please feel free to share with them so we can share the Beyond the Waves mission of spreading unconditional love and showing what it looks like to grow up with a sibling who has Down syndrome. I'm so grateful for all of you, sending you all so much love, and I'll talk to you next week.